Today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 3, 4. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? According to a recent book, right now in America, there are 1,780 commercial television stations, 15,503 broadcast radio stations, 1,331 newspapers, 2 million billboards, 5,821 movie theaters. Worldwide, there are 7 billion cell phone subscriptions comprising 4.77 billion mobile users, many of whom have multiple phones, and 1.276 billion websites. Now, that was numbers that I just gave you six months ago. So those are obscure at this point because there's probably a lot more of each of those, probably except for print newspapers. Those are headed the opposite way. James, James Billington, he served as the 13th librarian of Congress, the largest library we have. And it was actually, the Library of Congress was established back in 1800. Um, and it was established 12 years later in 1812. It received just over 6,000 books from Thomas Jefferson's library. In 2012, the Library of Congress had a collection of more than 155 million items which included more than 35 million cataloged books and other print materials in 470 languages and nearly 120 million additional items in various formats. And as, as James Billington served his time as the librarian and he saw all this information, he often questioned, do we really know as a culture, as a society, what to do with that information? And he said, he, he quoted, that our, our contemporary world is what he would call an info-glut culture. And then he said this, which is actually quite profound, or it's a probing question. 
but have we become any wiser? And it raises the question, it raises the tension of what I think we typically talk about when we think about wisdom. That wisdom is equal to knowledge or wisdom is equal to information. So the more information you get, the more knowledge you get, the wiser you are. So the more that you can acquire, the wiser of a person that you can be. That was actually the view on wisdom in first century Corinth and the church that existed in that city in the first century to whom Paul writes this letter. And he writes this letter, specifically this section in chapter two in the beginning of chapter three, to define for that young early church in Corinth a very different wisdom, a very different kind of wisdom, and that is the wisdom of God. So the question is, what is the true wisdom of God that marks maturity? That's what Paul's talking about in this passage. He starts with the word mature and he ends with a description of of infants, of children. He's talking about maturity. So what is the wisdom of God? What's the true wisdom of God that actually marks maturity? So let's start with what is the wisdom of God? Well, in the first five verses of chapter two that we looked at last week, Paul actually speaks bad about wisdom. He says, I came to Corinth preaching a gospel not in eloquent speech or wisdom, and then he says, I didn't, I didn't testify with plausible words of wisdom. So you get to the end of that going, Paul, is, Paul thinks wisdom is bad, right? Well, no, look at verse six. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age. And so what we see here is there's two kinds of wisdom. There's a wisdom of this age or a wisdom of this world and then there's the wisdom of God. Now, before we get to contrasting those, let me just speak, first of all, what is wisdom? What is wisdom? Wisdom is not just knowledge. It's not just information. Wisdom is actually the behaviors that flow out of a certain knowledge. Or, or better said, maybe wisdom is knowledge applied to your life. And we see this. If you look at, if you look at verse 8, Verse eight, none of the rulers of this age understood this, referring to the plan of God from ages past in verse seven. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. What's that mean? If the enemies of God would have known that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ would have been victory for God, they never would have crucified him. Right, they were operating off of a knowledge, off of a knowledge and a value system in the world that Jesus Christ was a threat to human pride. He was a threat to the power structures of the day. And so according to the knowledge, worldly knowledge, they acted accordingly and got rid of him. The point is that wisdom is behavior that flows out of a certain set of knowledge or information. That wisdom is knowledge applied. Let me give you an example of this. If this world, this world that you can see and touch is it. If this world's it, if, if the, the, the greatest uh, joy and pleasure that you will ever experience is in this life and this world, if the greatest purpose and accomplishment that you ever experience is in this life and this world, uh, if the greatest fulfillment at a heart level that you ever experience is in this life, in this world, 
then the wise thing to do would be to eat, drink, and be merry. If this is it, then wisdom, according to that set of knowledge, would say, live it up. Pursue every possible pleasure you can to the max. Climb the ladder at work. It doesn't matter who you step on. Climb the ladder and get the most power you can and make the most money you can. That would be the, the wise thing to do according to that, that understanding of the world. That would actually be consistent, right? That's the consistent, that's a consistent way to live according to knowledge. Here's the problem. This young church in Corinth and the believers in this young church were living that way. Even though God had taught them or they had been taught through Paul, they had taught, been taught a very different kind of wisdom, the wisdom of God. So what is the wisdom of God? Look at verse seven. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Then go to verse nine. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Paul is most likely quoting from Isaiah chapter 64, four here and chapter 65, 17. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. What's this mean? Verse seven, this God's plan from ages past, from ages past, from eternity, God has had a plan for his world that culminates in the work of Jesus Christ, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And that is to prepare a world and now on this side of sin, a new world that is beyond anything that we can imagine. The joy and the delight in the new heavens and the new earth that God has prepared through the work of his son Jesus is so amazing that we can't even get our mind around it. Too good to be true, as we would say. That's what Paul's saying here in verse nine. That's the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is this new world, this new city, this new heavens and new earth that is amazing and all wrapped up in the work of his son, Jesus Christ. What that means, with that kind of wisdom, all right, it's an unseen world, but that kind of wisdom says this, that every good pleasure that you experience in this world is but a parable of something so much greater in the world that God has prepared for those who love him. Now, here's the challenge. It's an unseen world. When God says, or when Paul says in verse seven, that it's a, it's a hidden and secret wisdom, doesn't mean that it's inaccessible. It just means it's unseen. It's unseen, this world that God has prepared through the work of his son. And yet the wisdom of God is that this unseen world becomes seen. This was particularly difficult for the, these new believers in this young ch church in Corinth because Corinth, as I said in the past couple of weeks, was an up-and-coming city. It was a prosperous city. There were, there, were, there were ways for social advancement, for economic advancement. 
it was, it was prosperous. There was new money. I mean, it was a, it was a booming city. There was a lot of glitz and glamour. And so it was very easy for these Corinthians to get so locked up in the world in front of them that they forgot this wisdom of God, this new world, this new city, this new heavens and, and new earth, where any sad or good thing in this world would get utterly eclipsed by the glory of Jesus Christ. They had forgotten that wisdom because of the culture they lived in. Now, there's some similarities here. We live in a city that's, that's growing. We live in a city that's prospering. I mean, you just got to drive down 295 near the town center, and there is concrete going in everywhere. There are apartments and condos going up everywhere. Financially, things are booming. Things are being built. It's a fun time to live in Jacksonville. I, it's, I can't remember the last time that the Jags aren't predicted to win three games and finish last in their division. They're in the town center. They're putting up a, um, an indoor skydiving range. What is that? I don't know. But it's next to Top Golf. It's, I mean, there is just stuff happening in this city. And it's very easy in the midst of prosperity to forget the wisdom of God, that unseen wisdom that is a new city and a new world and a new heavens and new earth that God is prepared and has prepared and is bringing to fruition in his son, Jesus Christ, a place for eternity where any sadness in this life, any joy in this life, will be eclipsed by the glory of Jesus Christ. That's the wisdom of God. Now, how do you get this wisdom? How do you get this wisdom of God? Can I pause for a second? Garrison, can you turn the lights up? That's better. How do you get this wisdom of God? Look at verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. These things, referring back to verse 7, verse 9, this new city, this new heavens, new earth that God has prepared through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. Right? These things are not accessed through human effort, through human performance, through wisdom of this world, they're revealed by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, what is the natural person? Well, down in, in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul talks about the people of the flesh, talking about the same thing here. The natural person is, it's the physical body. It's your flesh. It's just your physical body apart from God, apart from the Spirit of God, not animated by the Spirit of God, just, just you, your body, your flesh. What verse 14 says is the natural self or the natural person cannot understand this wisdom of God, these unseen things. 
And there's no amount of rationality or intellect or performance or wisdom by which you can access this. That it's revealed by the Holy Spirit, that only the Holy Spirit can reveal this unseen wisdom of God, this new city that God is preparing for his people, that it's beyond anything you can imagine. Now, here's the question. Why does Paul in this passage go to such extreme ends? I mean, he is emphasizing this. The difference between the spiritual person, right? That word spiritual shows up over and over in the passage. Between the spiritual person and the person of the flesh or the natural person. Why is he making such a big distinction here? Because in Corinth, in this young church, they had defined spirituality by human achievement. Spirituality was, maybe we would say today, becoming more religious. It's something you do. And so the way they did it is in the city that was cutthroat competition, it was about all about advancement, is the way that they became, quote, spiritual was to attach themselves to Apollos or Paul or Peter, the, you know, the celebrity pastors that I talked about last week or the week before, right? If we can attach ourselves to this giant, then spiritually we'll be seen in a better light, we'll achieve. You're gonna see later in chapter 14 that they even started leveraging the spiritual disciplines towards achievement, specifically speaking in tongues. And they started speaking in tongues to, 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 to boast and to show off how spiritual they were. And so in Corinth, spirituality became about what you could achieve. And Paul is saying, that's not spirituality. That's the natural person. That's of the flesh. Being spiritual means being the word there, literally, of the spirit. It means the Holy Spirit revealing something to you that you can't access on your own. And so being spiritual is being a receiver, not an achiever. But there's a big difference there. Came home from work a couple of weeks ago, and my son and my daughter ran up to me, and they said, Daddy, Daddy, we wrote a note to you. And I went, great, where is it? And so they put it out on the kitchen counter. And I looked down at it. And I thought, this is nonsense. This is foolish. Have they lost their mind? It was a blank sheet of paper. And I looked at it and I looked at them and I said, huh? And they said, daddy, take this pen has a light on it, shine it on the paper. So I took that pen and I shined it on there. And sure enough, this amazing love message from my kids appears. Here's what Paul's saying. The natural person, the person of the flesh, stands before that blank sheet of paper and stares at it. There was nothing. You give me that sheet of paper until I die. There's no way I could have accessed that message. I couldn't have looked hard enough. I couldn't have put on glasses. I couldn't have got a magnifying glass. There was no amount of human performance that was going to be able to read 
this message. Paul says, being spiritual or of the spirit is standing before that blank sheet of paper with that light shining on it. Where this unseen message is revealed. Let me give you another example of this, what it means for something to become real. Imagine you have a friend who never wears their seatbelt. You get in the car with them, they never strap on their seatbelt. They get in the car with you, they never put on their seatbelt, and you have nagged them, and you have nagged them, and they never put their seatbelt on. And then one day, they get in the car with you, and they immediately put their seatbelt on. And you turn to them, you say, what happened to you? And they say, a week ago, I visited a friend in the hospital who got in a car crash and projected through the windshield and had some 200 stitches on their face. Now, what's happened there? They didn't have any new information. They knew that if you don't wear your seatbelt, there is a danger that if you get in a wreck, you're gonna go out like a projectile through the windshield. They knew that. This person had that knowledge. What happened? This abstract proposition now became attached to a sensory experience, something that they saw. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He takes these truths about God and makes them become real to your heart where you experience them and they become real and they land. And now this, these, these unseen truths of a new heavens and a new earth, these unseen truths of Jesus Christ who's alive at the right hand of God, today all of these suddenly become real. Why? Because you thought harder? Because you worked harder? Because you read more? Because you locked down more? You achieved more? No, because the Holy Spirit revealed it to you. Now, that raises a question. Maybe some of you are in that place where you know about the truths about God. You generally know about the truths about God, but they're not real to your heart. Why is that the case? Well, Paul gets into, I believe, one of the reasons, probably the primary reason. And if you look at verse 15, he spells it out. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Now, here's what Paul's doing here, and this is, it, it, it can be confusing throughout the passage. When he says the spiritual person here, he's, he's using probably what was a Corinthian slogan of the day. That they used that. They said that a spiritual person. In other words, he's using their definition of what they would define as spiritual. And notice what it says. That the spiritual person in Corinth, it meant the one who had gathered so much knowledge and so much information and had become so wise that that person didn't need anybody else anymore. Even to the point where that person could instruct the mind of Christ, the mind of the Lord, right? The idea was more information, more knowledge that, that, 
they would rise to the top of the pyramid to where suddenly they would be, become the ones who would give all the advice and all the counsel because they had all the information. Coming to a place of independence where I don't need anybody anymore. I have arrived. In Corinth, that was celebrated. That was the goal. That's what it meant to be spiritual. And so they'd say, hey, if I'm gonna, I'm, here's how I'm gonna rise to the top of the pyramid. You know that guy, Paulos? He is a, he's a great preacher. Everybody loves him. I'm gonna attach to him. I'm gonna get some of him on me, right? And I'm gonna be lifted up, right? Or, hey, you know these spiritual discipline things? Hey, I am really good at speaking in tongues. So what I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna speak in tongues to show everybody how spiritual I am. It's chapter 14, we'll get there. Right, so the spiritual person comes to this place of independence. Paul's saying that's not spirituality. That's of the flesh. That's the natural person. The wisdom of God, this new heavens and new earth, all culminating in the work of Jesus Christ, this wisdom of God is revealed by the Holy Spirit. And here it is. It's received in a posture of dependence and humility. Scripture said, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. To receive Christ, to receive the Holy Spirit, you have to admit that you need help, that you're not at the top of the pyramid, intellectually, rationally, whatever it may be, that you have to submit to Jesus Christ. It's one of the, the primary things that happens at conversion when someone goes from not knowing Christ to receiving Christ, the primary thing that happens at conversion is this transformation from independence to dependence, from achieving to receiving. That our hearts in a submissive, dependent, humble place are in a place to receive Christ, to receive the Holy Spirit. So we've defined the wisdom of God. We've talked about how you get it. Last question. What does the wisdom of God produce? What does it produce? You know, wisdom always produces something. I said that earlier. It's, it's just behaviors that flow out of a certain set of ideas or knowledge. So wisdom produces something. And we see here in Corinth, it was producing what Paul is speaking against because it's the wisdom of the world. In verse three, jealousy, right? And strife, it was a it was competition. There were power plays going on. And Paul's saying, hey, listen, that's wisdom of the world. It's producing something. <laughs> the wisdom of the world does produce something. It produces jealousy, strife, power plays, competition. That's what it's going to produce. But there's a wisdom of God that produces something very different. When the Holy Spirit reveals the unseen things of God, Namely, his son, who is at the right hand of the father right now in a glorified body. Namely, that there's a new heavens and a new earth that has been prepared, that's being prepared, that will come, where all of our sadness and our joy will be totally eclipsed by the glory of Jesus Christ in this new city. That that unseen, when it is seen through the, through the eyes of the Holy Spirit and revealed by the Holy Spirit, it produces something. Let me, let me give you an example of this. In Genesis chapter six, when God tells Noah, Noah, judgment is coming. 
Judgment's coming. I want you to build an ark so that you and your, your family can be saved. And so Noah builds an ark. Listen to how Hebrews described it. Hebrew, Hebrews 11.7 says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. There it is. God, by his spirit, revealed to Noah unseen events. By faith, Noah, in reverent fear. That doesn't mean he was scared. Reverent fear, that's respect, that's submission. That's a posture of dependence. In reverent fear, right, before God, in dependence before God, he constructed an ark for the, sa uh, an ark for the saving of his household. The unseen was revealed by God to Noah, and then Noah had a very peculiar obedience that followed. He started building a boat in the desert. You don't build boats in the desert. Noah did. Foolishness to the, to the outside world. Foolishness to the wisdom of the world, right? So Noah had a peculiar obedience that flowed out of this wisdom of God, this wisdom that was revealed to him by the Spirit. Okay, so what does it produce? Well, it's clear from the first four verses of chapter three what it doesn't produce, right? Verse three, while there's jealousy and strife among you, you're not of the flesh and behaving, are you not of the flesh and only behaving in a human way? Paul's just saying, listen, you're acting as though the Holy Spirit has not revealed the wisdom of God to you, right? You're acting in a way that's consistent with the wisdom of the world and acting as though the Holy Spirit hasn't revealed the wisdom of God to you. You're fighting, you're envious, there's power plays. Why was there all this strife? Because they were using one another to build their own reputation and their own significance. See, in Corinth, everyone around you was a tool or a way that you could elevate yourself that you could make yourself significant, that you could make yourself important. And so if that meant attaching to a celebrity pastor of the day, if that meant speaking in tongues to show everybody how spiritual you were, you, you, instead of building those up, people up, you use them to build yourself up. That was what was going on in Corinth. It was a, let me say it this way. It was a you for me attitude. That was the attitude of Corinth. You for me. You exist for me. And Paul appropriately uses a word picture here and describes this attitude and how they're behaving as infants, babies, drinking from a bottle, drinking milk. And that's, a, that's an appropriate word picture. Think about the you for me attitude. That's pretty spot on with an infant, isn't it? Mom, I can't talk, but mommy, you exist for me. Daddy, you exist for me. And guess what? When I want something, I'm going to scream at the top of my lungs. And I'm going to scream until you give me what I want. Like Paul's saying, listen, you're, you're acting like infants, babies. This you for me attitude is not what the wisdom of God produces. So what does it produce? Look at the end of verse 16. But we... Have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. The wisdom of God produces just the opposite 
of you for me. The wisdom of God is revealed by the Holy Spirit, received by the Spirit. You receive it. And what you receive is the mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ, the one who said, for the joy set before him endured the cross, that Jesus Christ gave himself every last drop of himself for you out of love. Jesus lived the me for you. He lived the me for you. We receive the mind of Christ when we receive the Holy Spirit and therefore are transformed into living me for you, not you for me. You say, that's hard. It's really hard. So how does it happen? Look at verse 12. The reason it's so hard is because when we think of it, we typically think of it as something we have to achieve, right? So I need to walk out of here this morning and have a me for you attitude. Okay, I'm gonna work really hard at that, right? That's just achieving. Look at what verse 12 says. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that actually flows from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. We're back to this point about being receivers. That we're to be receivers. That when you receive your security and your significance and your worth and your value as a human being and your joy and your power and your pleasure and you you receive all of that from Christ, then you don't have to try to go get it from other people. See, that's the, the you for me is simply the natural person in need of all these things, security, significance, power, worth. And left to yourself, you have one option. That is, I'm gonna go use all of you to get that. That's you for me. But when you receive by the Holy Spirit all good things given to you by God, all of these things from Christ Now you've received them, and now you're free to actually go love people. You see, to be spiritual, to be mature, does not mean an upward trajectory into positions of leadership in the church, better, 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 better spiritual disciplines, um, you know, upward trajectory performance stuff. That's not what it means. To be spiritual means actually to be on a downward trajectory into deeper humility and deeper love that result in deeper acts of love towards others because now you have the power by the Spirit and all that you need in Christ to then be able to turn and live a me-for-you life. 1943, there were 230 women that were arrested as part of the French resistance They were arrested. They were taken to Birkenau, which was one of the largest concentration camps in the Auschwitz complex in Nazi Germany. Of those 230 women that were arrested for the French resistance, only 49 survived. But that was even remarkable. And in her book, A Train in Winter, Carolyn Moorhead, she actually got all of their memoirs and all of their journals and tried to patch together what 
what bonded these 49 women together and how did they survive? And what she found is that in those concentration camps, and you can imagine this, when it's just pure survival, the you for me attitude is just prevailing. I'm gonna survive and I don't care about you. I don't care, I'm gonna survive. What was striking about these women is that they had a very, very, very different community in that context. And it was very much a me for you. She shares examples of, of just the, the profoundless acts of selflessness that would happen in, in these unspeakable horrors and these tortures that they would, be, that they would go through. One, one, one of the things she describes is one of the women was actually about to hallucinate, go insane, just lose her mind over thirst. She needed water. And so all the rest of them, and they had just very meager rations of water. They all pitched in together to, to get this woman a full bucket of water. And it was just a picture of what can happen when there's a culture and a community of, of me for you. Now, there's some similarities there between that and Christ and his church, but there's one big difference. You know what that difference is? It's actually two. Number one, Jesus Christ experienced and endured the horrors and the torture for you and me. Number two is that in Christ and with the unseen wisdom of God revealed to us by the Holy Spirit of this new city that God has prepared for his people and his children that love him, it's not a question of if we're gonna make it. See, in the concentration camps, it was, I don't know if we're gonna get out of here alive. In Christ, there's no question. There's no question. Like, are we gonna make it to the new heavens and the new earth? This world's hard. There's suffering. Are we gonna make it? And the answer is absolutely. <laughs> Jesus has promised it. He suffered and tor was tortured for you. And he's ushering in this new world. It's a guarantee, it's a promise. And, and, and until he does come back and make it fully visible, right, where our faith is no longer, it's, it's, it's sight, till he does, he gives us the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit that makes it real to our hearts that Jesus is more real than the person sitting next to me, even though I can't see him. That, that this new city, this new heavens and new earth is more real to me than the city of Jacksonville that's booming and prosperous. It's real. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And then when that becomes real, right, the Holy Spirit empowers us to live in this beautiful community of me for you. Me for you. Me for you. Because of all that we have in Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, we all can resonate with that. That our hearts can't imagine what you have prepared for those who love you. This new city, this new heavens, this new earth that is coming, that has come and is coming in you, Jesus. And yet you tell us in your word that the Holy Spirit reveals it to us. And so, Father, we thank you for sending your spirit to reveal this truth to us, to reveal this unseen wisdom of God 
that any of our sad things or good things in this life will be eclipsed by the glory of Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, would you make us a humble people? Would you place us in a posture of dependence, understanding that to be spiritual means to be of the Spirit, which means to be dependent and humble, not achievers, but receivers, receiving, receiving, receiving all that you've given us. And then as we receive, that we would be empowered to live in beautiful community, beautiful community of me for you, me for you, me for you, till you return, Jesus. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.